0: from VOA Press Conference USA. Here is your host, Carol Castillo.
1: Welcome to Press Conference USA on the Voice of America. I'm Kim Lewis, guest host of this special edition of PC USA. It was 20 years ago, on September eleventh, two 2001, that al-Qaeda operatives carried out the deadliest terrorist attacks on American soil in the country's history, killing nearly 3,000 people and injuring thousands more. Weeks later in the wake of these terror attacks and after the Taliban government's refusal to hand over terrorist leader Osama bin Laden, the United States decision to go to war in Afghanistan in October 2001 received almost universal support with congressional approval of 98 to 0 in the U.S. Senate and 420 to 1 in the U.S. House of Representatives. With a U.S.-led invasion of foreign forces, the Taliban leadership quickly lost control of the country and relocated to southern Afghanistan and across the border to Pakistan. From there, they waged an insurgency against the Western-backed government in Kabul, Afghan national security forces, and international coalition troops. The killing of Osama bin Laden in May 2011 led most Americans to believe that the mission had been accomplished. But as then-President Barack Obama withdrew the troops that he had sent in for a temporary surge and planned further drawdowns, the Taliban recovered, and outside Afghanistan, the terrorist threat increased with the rise of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. In April 2021, President Joe Biden announced that U.S. military forces and U.S.-led foreign forces would leave Afghanistan by September 11, 2021. In a speech that marked the end of the U.S. 20-year engagement in the country on August thirtieth, twenty 2021, President Biden called the evacuation effort of the U.S. military and its Western allies a success, adding it is time to look to the future and not the past. Now under Taliban rule, the future of Afghanistan poses concerns in preserving the many political, security, and human rights accomplishments, especially those of women and girls, that have been achieved in the country since 2001. Well, joining me to discuss the past present, and future of Afghanistan are two VOA colleagues, Chris Simpkins, VOA senior national correspondent. It was 20 years ago this month when Chris was assigned by VOA to travel from Washington to Islamabad, Pakistan, two weeks after the 9-11 terror attacks. He was there for five weeks covering stories about the lead up to the war and then in early October, the fallout from the U.S. military operations in Afghanistan. My other colleague joining us today is Carla Babb, DOA's Pentagon correspondent. Carla covers defense and international security issues. Her datelines include Ukraine, Turkey, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Korea. Thank you, Carla and Chris, for joining me. Well, first, does it seem like 20 years have gone by since the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks? For many, this anniversary arrives at a time in this country that ranges from being very personal to sweeping. Even those who were very young at the time can still recall that day. So before we get into the show, can you share with us how that day affected you on a personal level, Carla?
2: Yes, I was in high school when the 9 11 attack happened. I remember a friend of mine, his name was Jamie, running into the office. I was an office assistant in one office and he was the office assistant in another office and said, Carla, turn on the TV. You're not going to believe this. And sure enough, that was when we were seeing the footage of the attacks in New York City. And as the day went on, as we found out about the Pentagon, as we found out about Shanksville, Pennsylvania, I remember looking at everybody just. In utter disbelief, people could not believe what was happening. There was sadness everywhere. But one of the things that I also remember of that day is I remember how brave Americans were, how people went back in those buildings to get people, how people risked their own lives to get their friends out. And it was just such a poignant moment that I'll never forget. And I don't think any American who can remember that day, who was old enough to remember that day, will ever forget it.
1: Chris, your memories.
0: I was working at VOA early that morning, writing television packages for our local show that we had. When I saw on television, was watching a news program and they had footage of the attacks in New York. It was immediately a sense of numbness And just the unimaginable happening and for quite some time we understood that it might be an attack but we weren't sure then as an hour or two after the attacks went by we understood that indeed the US was under attack and there was a sense of kind of calm panic but Once it became clear that a plane had flown into the Pentagon, the government issued a release of all employees. And I just remember looking out the window and seeing gridlock traffic in downtown Washington of all the federal government employees trying to leave the city on foot, by car, by bike. I continued at Voice of America to file throughout the day and into the early evening and try to update as much information information as I could for our language services and was there till about 11 o'clock at night and I'll never forget leaving the Voice of America headquarters and going home and the Washington capital city, completely empty. I was on the subway train, one of just a few people on there, and there was just this eerie ghost town silence. And the only thing that you could really hear were the sounds of fighter jet engines circling Washington, not knowing if there would be another attack. It was truly a day that I'll never forget in my lifetime.
1: Yes, I think most people, as you say, Carla, who were old enough to remember, just will not forget that day and the aftermath and the rescue operations. It was just very, very riveting. Chris, looking back on September in 2001, your VOA assignment, where they assigned you to Pakistan and Afghanistan, when you were in Pakistan, how were you able to get your assignments completed working as a one-man video journalist and reporter?
0: Well, I was sent over there. Actually, I was working as a one-man band video journalist, but I was sent with another colleague. And it was a little bit easier for us to operate. And we both operated independently, by the way. We have a bureau in Islamabad with an incredible staff that helped us. So it was much easier for us to get on the ground quickly and and start reporting thanks to the support of our Islamabad bureau staff. But we were doing a lot of radio at the time. And I remember all of our footage that we shot for television was sent back to our Washington headquarters via overnight air freight. So that's kind of how we had to operate. So we would file our main stories for radio and uh, we would transmit them back directly from our Islamabad Bureau studios back to the Washington studio.
1: Then in late October of 2001, you went to Afghanistan. So what happened to you on your assignment there and your encounter with the Taliban?
0: Well, that was very interesting because we knew that it would be dangerous to travel into Afghanistan. So we had an armed guard who was a former Pakistani army officer who had a rifle with them. And we traveled in a car together along with our fixer, who was a local journalist who helped us to translate the language and to move around, tell us where it was safe to go, where it was not safe to go. When we would encounter Taliban checkpoints, the interpreter would tell the Taliban that we were a North African news organization reporting. We really didn't have any problem because our fixer and our guard, were talking to the Taliban and convincing them that we were who we said we were and that we were reporters and, and reporting on the activities going on in Afghanistan at the time. I grew a beard, I was wearing traditional Pakistani dress, so I was able to fit in very well, but we would not divulge you know, that we were Americans or that we were reporting for the Voice of America. Now we're going to be
1: talking about the women of Afghanistan a little bit later in the show, but I just wanted to get your perspective at that time of the women. What were their thoughts and feelings about their lives at that time in Afghanistan?
0: Well, they were very soft-spoken, so to speak. They felt that they had a lot of opportunities had gone away under a Taliban rule. And before The Taliban rule, you know, there were so many women who were university professors, doctors, lawyers, and even members of the legislature. But after the Taliban took control, those positions went away. So there was quite a bit of fear in their voices because they could not do some of the things that men could do. They could not travel outside of the home without the company of of a man, and there were very harsh laws if they did not uphold those Taliban mandates. And the ones that we talked to uh, had been on the move for quite some time. So they were very tired of moving around the country, but they told us they had to do so for their own safety.
1: Chris, what did you learn from some Afghan folk singers? They fled the country and had gone underground in Pakistan because of death threats to the artists and the music was banned by the Taliban. So, what were their thoughts on the Taliban outlawing music and arts in Afghanistan?
0: Very disappointed. The people of Afghanistan under Taliban rule were. Subject to extreme forms of music censorship, the only musical activities permitted at the time was the singing of certain types of religious songs or Taliban chants. The folk song was not allowed. It was considered by the Taliban as un-Islamic, and it was banned. So a lot of Afghan folk singers ended up in Pakistan so they could continue to record their music and they thought at the time that recording the music was so vitally important to protect it for generations to come. And that was one of their main goals was to preserve their music by recordings and also get the word out about the ban on this type of traditional Afghan music. It's kind of ironic now we've heard reports 20 years later that the Taliban allegedly hunted down an Afghan folk singer late last month and killed that folk singer. The Taliban has pledged uh, now that they will not take part in some of the draconian mandates and laws that they had established when they controlled the country 20 years ago. But for a lot of afghan singers they're not sure if the taliban will again try to round out more uh, folk singers and eliminate any of the kind of cultural afghan music that they were producing
2: and that's something interesting that i've been hearing as well as this withdrawal ended as the united states is no longer in there a big criticism of the united states was that the united states was trying to impose its ideals of a government and a military and that ultimately failed and that's why the taliban was able to continue to to beat the government and to beat the military but there is a flip side to that criticism that is clearly there when i went to afghanistan somebody was explaining to me that when the united states came in and overthrew the taliban they said they got their culture back And so a lot of people don't think of it that way. They think of the U.S. trying to impose democracy and seeing that failure as the overall failure. But while democracy, our democracy didn't seem to stick, there were a lot of aspects in the Afghan culture that were able to come through because the Taliban wasn't pushing them down and forbidding them from happening, like Chris mentioned with the singing. And so that is a concern now that the U.S. is gone and the Taliban is back in control. Where will the Afghan culture go? What will happen? Will things be forgotten? Where Will they lose part of their history? And, and that's something many people are worried about.
1: That is a very good point to bring up, and we can talk a little bit more about that after we take a short break. We'll pause now, and when we return, we'll continue our conversation with Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Correspondent, and Carla Babb, VOA Pentagon Correspondent, as we look at the past, present, and future of Afghanistan. You're listening to Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Our guests are my colleagues, Chris Simpkins, VOA Senior National Correspondent, and Carla Babb, VOA Pentagon Correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, host of this special edition of PCUSA, as we look at Afghanistan 20 years after the terrorist attack on the U.S. and the subsequent U.S.-led invasion of the country. Our Press Conference USA podcast is available for free download on our website at voanews.com slash PC USA. You may also follow us on Twitter or connect with us on Facebook at Carol Castiel VOA. Now back to our discussion. Well, Carla, you pointed out in a recent VOA report that you did in the chaotic effort, the U.S. managed to evacuate more than 124,000 civilians from Afghanistan, including 6,000 Americans by August 30th. However, you were able to tell the story of one woman who remains trapped in Afghanistan. Can you tell us about her?
2: Yes, her name's Nasria. She wants us to only use her first name. And she's from California. She's 25 years old. She went to Afghanistan in June to marry her longtime boyfriend. She was planning to leave on August the 20th. She had her flight all ready to go. And the Taliban crept in and took over Kabul, where she didn't even expect it coming. So she was stuck. And she immediately tried to get the state department to help her flight was canceled she got the notification from the airlines and she spent days and nights even sleeping on the street trying to get into that airport she never could make it she would show her passport to the taliban and they would basically ignore her One of them pointed a gun to her head. Others shot at her feet. There was one time she was so desperate. It was in the final day or two. And she just said, "Okay, I'm just going to walk by. I'm just going to walk by them. And she started walking by towards the U.S. military personnel that were there. And the Taliban started shooting at her feet and said, come back or we're going to shoot you. And so she had to come back. And it was just heartbreaking to hear her story because now she's trapped and All of the U.S. military is gone. The State Department is gone. She's by herself. She's hearing these reports that there are Taliban members that are walking around door to door looking for people with blue passports trying to take her away. And and so she's terrified right now. She definitely feels left behind by her government. So what do you think will happen to her? We are hoping that she can get out as soon as possible. But the frustrating thing as a journalist watching what's unfolding is there hasn't been any action from the State Department or the military yet. The U.S. completed its withdrawal more than a week ago, and you would expect movement on these fronts. We've heard a report that a handful of Americans were able to get out, but there are more than 100 of them left. And and you would expect some big diplomatic effort or some big military effort because there are Americans left behind and, and nothing is happening. And there's also frustration because I'm very close to the military community. There's a lot of frustration from veterans whose interpreters are stuck in Afghanistan. They had their SIV paperwork started, in some cases even completed, some of the family members, and they still couldn't get past these checkpoints and they're left behind and they're wondering what's going to happen next because they trusted the United States when the United States said, we will be there with you. We are going to support you. And now the United States is gone and they're wondering, what am I going to do? What's going to happen to me?
1: So what are top military officials? What are they saying about how The U.S. military evacuated Afghanistan last month.
2: Well, so General Mark Milley, he is the top U.S. general of the U.S. military. He said that there was nothing that he or anyone else saw that indicated any collapse of the Afghan army and the government in 11 days. So they said that they just simply could not. I'm paraphrasing here, but he was basically trying to to make the argument for they could not have prepared for this. But I've heard from intelligence sources that when President Biden made his decision back in April, those intelligence sources were saying that there was a likely scenario where the Taliban could take the Afghan capital at the end of the year, late December timeframe. Then sometime in June or July, I'll be honest, I have not been able to pinpoint the exact shift in the intelligence, but there was sometime in this summer that the intel was pointing to a scenario where the Taliban could have a takeover in 90 days. For simplicity's sake, let's say July 1st, 90 days from July 1st is late September, which means that the intel was pointing that from April to June, July, the takeover timeframe had shifted from potentially late December to sometime in late September. So this is the way that I see this. This was like a ball that was going down a hill. And what I mean by that is. A ball picks up speed as it rolls down a hill the security situation was deteriorating faster and faster so while general milley is saying that they didn't have the time to see this coming and general frank mckenzie the head of u.s central command said to me at a briefing following the evacuations completion that he thought that the troops did a very good job of getting everybody out that they could giving the unique challenges the big question that we reporters are going to be asking in the coming weeks and months is why did there have to be so many unique challenges was the intelligence not strong enough who was the leadership that didn't look at the intelligence correctly that's what we need to find out as all this gets parsed out in the coming days and weeks because the troops they needed to carry out a neo that's a non-combatant evacuation operation the question is why were they still pulled out from afghanistan as scheduled As the intelligence on the ground was saying the security situation was rapidly deteriorating, they knew if they had to do some sort of evacuation, these troops would have to go back in. So there's lots of questions that we reporters have as we're parsing it out. And and in the immediate term, the leadership has said now is not the time to do that. Now we have to evacuate our people. Now that the evacuation is over, however, it is time to start reflecting on what went wrong. I think you'll be seeing more questions in the coming days about these very topics.
1: Absolutely. Those are all very good questions, as you say, that a lot of journalists and people are asking. Chris, when you were there 20 years ago, how does that compare with Afghanistan, would you say, now that it's under a Taliban rule? For instance, the Taliban is facing the challenge of governing a nation of 38 million people that heavily relies on international aid and imposing some form of Islamic rule on a population that is far more educated and even cosmopolitan than it was when the Taliban governed Afghanistan in the late 1990s. So what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, it's ironic that when the Taliban were running Afghanistan 20 years ago, they are facing some of the similar challenges that they face now trying to maintain a government trying to bring in economic aid that is desperately needed for that country as it was 20 years ago and now still 20 years later they don't have any big means of income coming into the country. And the Taliban also were struggling with the finances of the country. I remember 20 years ago, a lot of Afghans were running on the banks to try to get their money out of their bank accounts, and the banks were closed. And a similar thing now, the Taliban are allowing people to go to the banks. The banks finally opened again now, but the Taliban allegedly, is only allowing Afghans to take out about $200 U.S. Dollars a week. So a lot remains to be seen whether they can govern the country and help uplift it and bring the people up.
2: And that's why a lot of the Taliban have tried to convince this cosmopolitan group of Afghans not to leave because they need a lot of the Afghans to run you know, the electricity grid, to do all these different jobs, doctors and whatnot, that the Taliban just doesn't have the infrastructure and doesn't have the ability to set up on their own. I and mean, let's not forget the Taliban has managed to have an empire of drug trade money, mining, export. I've heard reports that the Taliban was able to raise up to $1.6 billion a year on these, but that can help fuel an insurgency and a group of militants, but it cannot be the way that a government can successfully run. So that will be a huge challenge for them in the coming days.
1: Since the recent takeover of the Taliban, some women said they had no time to buy a burqa to comply with Taliban rules that women should be covered up and accompanied by a male relative when they leave the house. And this flowing cloth, that represents the sudden and devastating loss of rights gained over 20 years for women of Afghanistan. However, defiant Afghan women held a rare protest recently saying they were willing to accept the burqa if their daughters could still go to school under Taliban rule. So how do these women compare to those under the Taliban rule of the
2: 1990s? Well, first of all, I've got to say, and we should all know just how brave these women are to be doing what they're doing, to be protesting. And that's an incredible statement for them. And maybe that shows the shift between the women of the 1990s and the women today. I was speaking to Nasria and she was telling me when I was talking to her, she goes, you don't see women anywhere. It was as if overnight, all of the women disappeared in the streets. And I think that that's something that after the women have had a chance to reflect, They may not be able to accept sitting in their houses too much longer, as you see with this protest. So maybe there can be some movement. It seems to me that the senior Taliban leadership wants to be a legitimate force. They don't want to be the pariah of the world, and they want the United States and others to provide them some support, monetary support, so they can still rule and still hold on to power. So it's possible that maybe these women will have enough influence to sway some of the policies going forward.
0: And when I was in Afghanistan 20 years ago, we saw very few women out on the street. The ones that we did see on the streets were wearing the burqas covered from head to toe. It's surprising for me to see footage of the protest in Kabul now of women who aren't dressed in the traditional burqas. The Taliban broke up some of those protests, but again, to back up what Carla said, these are incredibly brave women to be out in the streets uh, showing their identity and risking a lot of of retribution from the Taliban and protesting. But I think the women now see this as a pivotal moment in the history where the world has its attention on Afghanistan and women in the country want to show what it was like 20 years ago and what they've accomplished in the last 20 years and they don't want to see that reversed. want to go back to 20 years ago when girls for instance over the age of eight could not attend school now the taliban has said that they will allow girls to attend school and we have seen some pictures produced by them showing classrooms with boys on one side of the room and the girls on the other side but it remains to be seen going forward how much freedom women will have in that country.
1: Yes, and I just wanted to get this last question in as we are running out of time. Journalists who worked with private media in Afghanistan say that they will not be able to work independently under the Taliban, despite assurances that it will allow independent media to operate in the country. So how do you both see journalism and reporting being conducted in the country under a 2021 Taliban rule? Carla, let's start with you.
2: That remains to be seen. I've gotten a report from a journalist who was beaten just from going outside. So there's that aspect of it. And there's also the aspect you've seen. There's been a woman, female journalist who was on the TV news in the United States, and she was talking about how that she showed up for work. And they said, sorry, you don't work here anymore because she was a woman. They didn't expect the journalist to report out. Uh, there's been other reports from across the country in Afghanistan, private organizations, private journalists being told that they have to now report Taliban propaganda. So I'm hopeful that somehow, the journalists who have been reporting for 20 years will somehow find a way to get the stories out. But the Taliban, as it is now, looks like they're going to try to do everything they can to suppress journalists' rights to report the truth.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a difficult situation, and I see a lot of parallels between now and 20 years ago. 20 years ago, for Western journalists operating in the country, you did have to be extremely careful, often masquerading who you were and maintaining that you were with Arab news organizations instead of Western news organizations. I think now it will be difficult for Western journalists to operate in Afghanistan, so we We will rely more on local journalists to get the story out, but they're going to be under extreme pressure and have to watch their movements carefully and watch who they talk to. I think the Taliban has become a little bit more media savvy over the last 20 years, and it seems from in the withdrawal period of Afghanistan, they were allowing journalists to report on their activities, who they trusted, and these were most journalists of Afghan descent who uh, work in Europe, who were allowed, for instance, to follow them into the Kabul airport after the Americans had withdrawn and shown the equipment and everything. So uh, the Taliban operate in a very loyalty kind of way. And so journalists who they consider loyal, they will allow them to accompany them and report on their activities and then push that out to Western media, but I still think journalism in Afghanistan is certainly under threat and journalists working in the country will remain under threat.
1: Yes, there are many challenges that lie ahead with Afghanistan, so we will all be watching and continuing to cover the country. We will have to end on that note. My thanks to my seasoned colleagues, Carla Babb, VOA Pentagon correspondent, and Chris Simpkins, VOA senior national correspondent. Thank you both for sharing your experiences and insight as we reflect on the past, present, and future of Afghanistan. Press Conference USA on the Voice of America was produced in Washington. I'm Kim Lewis. Join us again next week for another Press Conference USA on the Voice of America.